be like Jesus and sit down and teach. That was his method, and it's pleasant to be in a, an environment where that's comfortable and possible. Uh, I appreciate very much the invitation to be with you. I'm not sure I would have felt confident to take off the time from Ember Hills to be here if it hadn't been for the invitation to speak. And uh, it's been a blessing already for my wife and me to be here. Uh, I, some of you may have heard me tell this. I was preaching for a fairly large church over in Alabama. And on the same Sunday, we had some visitors from another place, up in Iowa somewhere, and they said, it's so wonderful to worship with such a large group of Christians. At the same Sunday, one of our members said, you know, just last Sunday, we were with a little group meeting in a home, and it was so wonderful to be with a little group. Uh, the challenge we have, whether we were with a big group or a little group, is to keep our minds, as you said just a minute ago, on the worship of the Lord. His presence is what counts, whether the number is five or five hundred. We, we worship him, and uh, we have to discipline ourselves to keep our heart in that place. I'll just stress the fact that you're not going to hear anything you haven't heard before, and not probably today going to learn anything you haven't already known. But uh, there are some things with a new congregation that I always like to stress, and uh, I hope that the presentation will be beneficial to you. Richard read the promise of Jesus that he would build his church. And I don't need to tell you that he was not speaking about a denomination or anything of that nature. He was simply saying he would gather his people uh, to himself. And that group of people who left the world and followed Jesus would be his church. Now, sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't say much about church. And that's right. He said a lot about disciples and followers, but he only used the word church twice, as far as I know, in, at least recorded in the, in the scriptures. But that doesn't mean that uh, he did not reveal his will for his church. There's so many questions about how these people who are gathered uh, around him as to how they're to worship, how they're to be organized, whether they're to be organized or not. Many, many questions like that. And Jesus really did not leave those questions unanswered. While he was here on earth, he didn't talk much about that because they would not have been in position to understand those things. He just said, I'm going to gather my people. But in this very text that Richard read a few minutes ago, he said to Peter, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And in Matthew 18, 18, he said this to all the apostles. And so he left his apostles here to reveal his will about how the church should be organized and how the church should worship and these things that are uh, so, many, so much significance as questions that have to be answered. Uh, he made sure that they did not just act on their own initiative. And there's a pastor scripture that I often come to, John 16, verse 12, beginning. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. If he had begun to describe these things about the church, they wouldn't have understood However, he said, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So when we come to the second chapter of Acts and realize that the Lord had ascended to the Father and had sent the Spirit to his apostles, we immediately begin to read about the church. And these men who Jesus said would bind and loose were binding and loosing the things that were practiced by this assembly of people. And consequently, we have more information about the church in Jerusalem where this coming of the Spirit and the beginning of the church took place than we have about any other church in the New Testament. We know so much uh, about it. In the first place, and I'm going to mention six characteristics. In, in the first place, we know who made, who made it up, who the membership were. Uh, beginning back with verse 36 of the second chapter of the book of Acts, where we read about this great multitude who as, came together on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And uh, when we read, after we have read Peter's sermon, he summarizes it all in verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Why did they ask that question? They believed what Peter had said, that God had made this Jesus whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. So these people were believers in Jesus as the Christ. And Peter answered, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, or, if you notice, the words to them are in italics. These are added by the translators. And it could actually be added together. And so these people who were on the day of Pentecost, believers in Christ, penitent regarding their sins, and willing to be baptized, gladly receiving that word, these made up this first church, beginning with 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Every congregation that assembles should be made up of that kind of people, people who believed in Jesus and repented of their sins and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. And that's the way this congregation is beginning. And so you certainly are following the New Testament pattern insofar as your membership is concerned. But in verse 42 we read that this was not the end. They didn't just go home and forget about the commitment that they had made in their baptism. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, I'm going to spend a little more time on this than I am the other five items, so don't get worried if we spend a lot of time on this one. Uh, they continued steadfastly. The New American Standard says they were continually devoting themselves uh, to these four things that are mentioned in this passage. 
in the first place to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Some translations have, but doctrine and teaching are exactly the same thing. And what does that mean? Well, when we say that they were continually devoting themselves, the apostles' doctrine, it certainly means that they were listening to and learning what the apostles were teaching. In uh, verse 46 of this second chapter of Acts, it says that they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Every day they were going to the temple. Well, what was going on in the temple? If you turn to chapter 5 and verse 42, you learn what was going on in the temple. Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So every day there was teaching and preaching going on in the temple, and they were attending that, those gatherings in the temple to learn the Word of God. We're blessed to have the written Word so that we don't necessarily have to come together to learn, but this was something that they were determined uh, to absorb because they were willing to go to the temple every day. Uh, for one thing, these people had come from distant places, you would read a little bit earlier, and uh, apparently they remained in Jerusalem for a period of time. They'd come simply for a feast, but they apparently remained five or six months in order to be thoroughly indoctrinated in the, in the apostles' teaching. This means, of course, in addition to the fact that they attended and learned, that they were also practicing what the apostles taught them. They accepted the word of the apostles as the word of Jesus, and really there's no other way to know what Jesus wants or what Jesus would have us to do except by what the apostles said. And Jesus certainly in his personal life taught many things about our moral conduct, but what did he want about his church? Well, we only can know that from the apostles' teaching, from what they bound and what they loosed uh, when they were guided by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so uh, that's the only way we can know today what Jesus would have us as a church to do is, is by the apostles' teaching, which we have, of course, in, in the New Testament. And I'm confident that's your purpose as you begin this work here in this part of the city to do what the Lord wants you to do, uh, not what some creed may require or some legislative body of men may ordain, but what the Lord would have you to do. And you need daily to be reading the scriptures personally and coming together as a group to apply the teaching of the apostles, which is the teaching of Jesus, to your practice. One of the things that has always impressed me about the Ember Hills congregation, I've been an elder there for a number of years, is that I have seen the elders time and again when some question arose as to what we were to do, reach in a, perhaps, perhaps in a briefcase or something, pull out a Bible, or more recently pull out their iPad, and, and look up what the scriptures say on that particular subject to seek the authority of the Lord. By all means, let that be your governing authority, the word of the Lord as it was spoken through his apostles. But not only did they continue in the apostles' teaching, they continued in the fellowship. And that's an extremely important word. Uh, it's been so seriously abused 
uh, many times people, somebody said you can't hear the word fellowship without smelling coffee and donuts. Uh, there is a sense in which when we eat together it's fellowship, but it's not the kind of fellowship that's mentioned here. In fact, the Bible never uses the word fellowship with reference to eating anything else except the Lord's Supper. That is, when you get the word communion, it's, it's from the same uh, original word as, as fellowship. But uh, uh, I found a definition in Vincent's word studies that I think is very significant. I'm going to read it and then look at it just a little bit at a time. Fellowship is a relationship between individuals which involves a common interest and a mutual active participation in that interest and in each other. Uh, I'm going to illustrate that first by my son when he was a teenager. He got interested in ham radio, but he didn't just do the ham radio on his own. Uh, he found other individuals who knew ham radio. In fact, some of them rather encouraged him in getting, getting started in it. So there was something that set these people apart. They were amateur radio operators. They were set apart from the rest of the, of the people. But that relationship brought them into uh, a mutual active participation in that interest. They had a common interest, which is included. They became related to one another because of that common interest. And then they participated. They had ham radio meetings about every week. And they went and then they'd have meets and go out in the, in the, in the woods and and throw up antennas and, and have uh, stay all night uh, participating in this particular hobby that they had. Well, what was the result? Well, the result was that they formed a very close relationship with each other, and they would help one another no matter what the problem. If one got sick, well, they were all interested. They were all concerned. And it was not that they had something in common, but they were concerned for one another. I remember one of them was a was a an invalid, and they the group bought him a new hospital bed because he needed it desperately. Uh, that's the kind that that was fellowship in in ham radio. But these people had fellowship based on something other than ham radio. It was the fact that out of all the people in Jerusalem, they had accepted Jesus as the Christ who was sitting at the right hand of God, who had died for the forgiveness of their sins. This was what gave, made them, uh, drew them together. They had a relationship with one another. The believers were different from the unbelievers. But there was more than that. They participated in this. We've already seen that they went to the temple every day. They were active in this relationship. And in addition to that, they were concerned for one another. In fact, let's read just a little bit more here. After it said that they continued in fellowship, it said, beginning with verse 44, that all who believed were together. They enjoyed one another's company, and they had all things in common. Uh, they shared what they had. Many of these had come from out of town uh, for a short visit, a week or so at the feast, but they stayed in Jerusalem over a period of time. And those who were believers at living in Jerusalem 
invited those who'd come from outside to come into their home, come in to stay with us. And when they stayed with them, they didn't say, now that's my house, this is my uh, food, this is my, it, it was all in common. I've experienced that many times in many homes. And uh, continuing, they, when the money ran out, as you would expect, they sold their possessions and goods and divided among all as anyone had need. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were, th this became the center of their life. Just as ham radio became pretty important to all of those who accepted that as a hobby, this became even more the center of their life. And so their relationship with others who believed was much, much closer and it demanded much, much more of them than it did their relationship simply with a neighbor or even, even a family member. A brother in Christ was the closest relationship that they could experience. So this is what is meant by fellowship. And if you, and in a small group like this, I think it's a little easier in some ways uh, to experience fellowship with one another. You get to know each other better, and uh, you feel a greater responsibility to one another than you do sometimes in larger groups. And so there's an opportunity to develop in fellowship, but there's also, as you begin to, to convert people, there's also the challenge of bringing them into that fellowship. Uh, I visited in uh, the Czech Republic in Prague not long after the Iron Curtain had fallen. And one of the preachers there just made the statement. He said, one of the great difficulties we have here is bringing these people into a sense of community, feeling that part of one another. For so many years under communism, they had been taught to be afraid of one another. You never knew who was going to report on you if you did anything that was contrary to the will of the government. And so everybody was suspicious of one another. Well, you baptize this man over here, you baptize this man over here, and you bring them together on a Lord's Day morning, and they don't know one another. And so instead of reaching out and feeling uh, a, a sense of unity because of their faith in Christ, they're still suspicious of one another. What's he, what's he here for? What's he going to report? What's going to? And, and it was a very, very difficult time, I think, to, to bring these into a sense of fellowship, fellowship, a relationship with one another, making this group the center of their lives, looking to Christ as the thing that would draw them together. You can understand that difficulty. And as new people are converted, you may have some of the same difficulty. But this is the goal that we, that we all work toward. But not only does it say that they continued in fellowship, but it also says they continued in the, in the breaking of bread. That has to do with the Lord's Supper. I don't think there's any doubt. In the original language, it says breaking of the bread. And that's really in contrast with verse 46, which says they were breaking bread from house to house. Breaking bread there just means a common meal. They were eating with one another here and there. But there was a special bread that they continued steadfastly in uh, observing. And that was the Lord's Supper, 
And so I trust there will never be a Sunday uh, that you do not break the bread. Uh, there may be weather conditions that will keep you from getting together or something of the kind. But whenever you gather on the first day of the week, it should be to break the bread. Uh, we saw this this morning where Paul insisted that they should be respectful of his teaching because he had taught them. He, he had uh, begotten them in the gospel. How much more should we be grateful to Jesus who died and made possible our salvation? You mentioned, the, and I thought of very appropriately, the observance of the, the invasion of Normandy. Uh, and we think about the sacrifices that men made for our freedom. But how much greater sacrifice Jesus made. And he did it willingly, he did it intentionally, out of love for us. And how much greater is our responsibility to remember him and to love him uh, than anyone else. And they were devoted to prayer. I'm not going to take time to talk about that that much, but they, there were public prayers in the fourth chapter of Acts uh, when the apostles had been threatened. They came together and offered prayer together. The leaders said they wanted to devote themselves to prayer. Uh, there were prayers in homes in the 12th chapter when Peter was in prison and actually had been sentenced to death. They met in a home and prayed for him, and the individuals prayed. Peter was praying on the housetop uh, when the messengers came from Cornelius. So there were prayers of all kinds, and prayer seemed to dominate their thinking. So those, that's the second thing in which they continued. They, first of all, we've talked about their membership, and then second, their devotion. They were devoted uh, to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. May this congregation be noted for that. That's the thing that should really be the, the, the heart of what we do, not the building of a building, I read a book one time that said that some churches uh, exist to build a building in which to meet to decide how to build a bigger building, in which to meet to decide how to build a bigger building, uh, building with the construction of brick and mortar is sometimes about all you see in a church or to have fun or whatever. But when this congregation, large or small, is considered, the thing that should stand out is your devotion, first to the apostles' teaching, to one another in fellowship with Christ, to the breaking of bread and, and to prayer. I'm going to mention a, a third thing quickly. Uh, the discipline in the fifth chapter, uh, this uh, generosity caused some to take uh, the opportunity to sell part what they had and to bring only part of it, but to represent it as though they had brought it all. And uh, it was a lie. Now, apparently the rest of the members had been doing these things very honestly and with generosity, but these people did it. We talked this morning about motive in class. These people did it not apparently to be out of love, but out of a desire for the praise of men. And so they could get praise by saying they sold it for that so much money, but they'd also have some money still left over in their pocket to buy them a new chariot or something or other. 
Uh, and the Holy Spirit just took them out. You know the story. Uh, and I've sometimes asked, what does this teach? Well, some people just can't imagine it teaches anything. It wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't for that. But very early, the Lord is saying, my people are to be pure people. My people are not to be liars. They're not to be adulterers. They're not to be cheats. They're, they're to be honest people. You know, very early in the worship in the Old Testament, God took out two priests. And he said the reason was he wanted to be respected. And he's making an example of those two priests. And I think he's making an example here that the church is not to harbor liars. It's not to harbor people who are drunkards. In fact, we have a whole list. We'll not look at it now in 1 Corinthians 5. And then we have in 2 Thessalonians 3 uh, a whole list of people that are not to be uh, harbored in the church. And, and so keep discipline strong in this congregation. Now that people say, well, but that's judging. Well, Paul said you've got to judge one another. That has to be done when people are obviously violating, as, as uh, uh, Robin said, violating the scriptures, not violating our traditions, but violating the scriptures. Uh, there's just no place in the church for that kind of people. Uh, there is a place for people who are ignorant and are doing the best they can but when people just willfully, willingly violate the teaching of the scriptures, they have no place in the church because it's made up of saints, people who are determined to obey God. And so discipline somewhere along the line, if this church exists, will have to be practiced. It's to be done in love, in the hope of the penitence of the person who sinned, but it must be done because the Lord wants it to be done. The Holy Spirit gave this example. Then, as I've already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 and Romans 16, these passages teach that people who are just willfully violating the will of God have no place really in the church at all. Now, this church was a wonderfully united church, and I hope this church will all be, always be a church that is united. In the fourth chapter and verse 32, there's this wonderful statement made. The multitude who they believed were of one heart and one soul. I suspect that's true to a great degree of this small group, that you're of one heart and one soul. But I guarantee you there are going to be challenges down the way, especially as the number grows. And those challenges are of two different types. One is a doctrinal difference. You may come to a point where there's just a, a, a difference in doctrine and what, what you believe the Bible teaches. Well, the solution to that they had already found. They continued in the apostles' teaching. And uh, they worked together to learn what the apostles would say and what was the truth of God. The second kind of cause for division, of course, is personal. Uh, individuals may get crossed up with one another or you may develop uh, parties where some like this preacher some like that preacher or some think we ought to worship on you one a great little church that has just been almost torn up by a question of whether we're going to meet in this part of town or that part of town and uh, each feels that this is what's necessary for the church 
actually a great divi division or uh, crisis developed in the sixth chapter where you had these people who had come in from a distance, generally spoken of as Hellenists, Jews who had grown up in the Gentile world and were more a part of the Gentile culture. They had come into Jerusalem for the feast and been converted. And in contrast, there were those Hebrews that were there living in Jerusalem. And uh, because of the, the crisis that existed, since so many were away from home, the church actually was feeding widows. And these from outside of town thought their widows were being neglected by the apostles who were doing the feeding. Well, what happened? In the first place, they brought it to the apostles. They didn't just get around and talk against one another. They came to those who were in charge. And to, great, to, great, to a great degree, the apostles were, the one, were serving as the elders, I think, of the church in the beginning. And they brought it to them. And uh, they called the whole multitude together and said, We're, we really shouldn't be serving tables anyway. You get a feeling almost, they say, well, we may have neglected somebody. It wasn't intentional, but we may have neglected. They were not proud. They didn't say, now look, we're in charge here, and if you don't like it, you can just get out. That's the way some might respond. But they, they seemed to recognize that things were not proper in that they were serving tables. And so this introduced seven men. And it's so interesting that the seven men who were chosen all had these Greek names indicating that they may have been from the number who felt that they were neglected. There was a willingness, there was a desire for unity. And no matter how much you desire for unity, there were going to come disagreements. But if there is a humble spirit and the right attitude toward one another, that can be worked out. And it was worked out here. And I love the statement that's made uh, that the, it pleased the verse five says that saying pleased the whole multitude. They thought it was great, and <coughs> the result was in verse seven the word of God spread. Instead of the church being set back, we're told here that the word of God spread. There's one more characteristic that I want to mention. Well, it's two more. <laughs> one just quickly I'll mention. That is the organization. As I mentioned just now, I think the apostles really served as elders in the beginning. Uh, apparently in verse 6, servants certainly, they were to deacon tables, and I think we can call them deacons. But by the 15th chapter of Acts, the church had elders. And that's something that you need to look, <coughs> look forward to. No matter how small a church is, you need immediately to start thinking in terms of elders just as soon as there are men who are qualified to be elders. Elders and deacons then in the church in Jerusalem. And finally, uh, it was an evangelistic church. Uh, that's pretty evident from the last verse of the second chapter where it says that the Lord added daily those that were being saved. They had daily baptisms. Uh, we feel like we're doing well when we have monthly baptisms. And weekly, we just really get excited. But these were daily baptisms people being added to the Lord day by day. In the 8th chapter, when the church was scattered, uh, they went. Apparently all the members left Jerusalem except the apostles. And they went everywhere preaching the word. Uh, the, the, this period of time they had spent in the uh, uh, temple listening to the apostles' teaching 
had prepared them to be able to share the gospel with other people. And so they go out everywhere preaching the word. And in the 11th chapter, when the Gentiles had heard the word, we're told that they rejoiced that to the Gentiles had been granted repentance unto life. And then in the 11th chapter, in verse 22, when the gospel had had significant fruit in Antioch and a large church had been established, they came, it came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas as far as Antioch to encourage this new group. And this church most certainly must be evangelistic. Ember Hill must be. This church must be. Every church must be, whether it's large or small, concerned for reaching the lost, teaching the gospel by every method available. Uh, I rejoice to get reports from various gospel preachers in various places and to see what they're doing to try to get out and find lost people. And I appreciate the efforts that you've made here with the, uh, the, speech, the, the message in the library and the uh, uh, Sweet Auburn Festival and other things that you've done to try to reach out to the lost. Uh, that's the only way, really, that uh, a church can be a true, truly evangelistic, true church of Christ concern for the lost people. So six things that I've unloaded on you quickly, and as I pointed out, it's not something you didn't know, but I just trust that you'll always be very concerned that the, that the membership of this church be those who have been baptized into Christ. Uh, when an individual wants to be a member at Ember Hills, and the, the first question the elders ask is, tell us about your salvation. Are you right with Christ? And if you're not, then you have no place in the membership of any church of Christ. There has to be a relationship with Christ. Be sure that you continue to devote yourself to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Be sure you exercise the discipline that God intends for a church to exercise. Be united by coming to agreement on doctrine through the study of the scriptures and by love for one another that will cause you to work out problems, even if it involves sometimes admitting that you've made a mistake or in various ways giving in to others uh, in order to maintain unity. Be sure your organization is, is as scriptural as possible, not at this point perhaps, but a little along the way, appointing elders, deacons to serve and maintain your evangelistic spirit. That's what the Lord wanted a church to be. And he placed the apostles pretty well in charge of the church at Jerusalem so that as he instructed them through the Holy Spirit, they would bind and loose the characteristics of the church that the Lord intended should be there. And if that was what the Lord wanted then, it's what the Lord wants now, for he's the same yesterday and today and forever. May God bless you. Uh, we've prayed for this congregation and I trust that God will continue to bless you and that you can grow and develop into a strong body of people. But you're strong now. You're strong now. Uh, numbers are not what makes strength. It's dedication and devotion. But as that dedication and devotion is practiced, uh, there'll be souls added to the Lord. My prayer is that God will continue to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity.